you've come back. That's awesome. It, uh, I do worry, push pause, you might never come back, but uh, it's great to see you. And awesome that the uh, kids' ministry are doing such a great job. It's uh, praise God for all of them. Keep praying for them. Uh, it's hard work. It's a, it's a challenge during this time, but uh, we are so thankful for their work. And uh, trust the kids are now settled. Let me pray, and we'll dig into the Word together. Well, Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this uh, opportunity to be connected to one another, to, um, to engage together on the things of you, and we, um, we long to be back together, but we thank you for this technology and pray, please, you'd use it this morning to stir us to love and good deeds, to stir us to know you better, to stir us to trust you. And we ask, please, in, uh, in this time in the Word, that it would be a great blessing to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the things that is a mark of our current time is a crisis of faith. And I don't mean a crisis of faith religiously, spiritually, though I do think that's the case as well. I, I think we've got a crisis of faith around everything, around everybody. Um, I, I think we're in a context now where we're not sure we can trust anybody anymore. Um, the politicians, have we ever trusted them anyway? But, you know, politicians, can we trust them? Uh, the media, uh, scientists even, uh, some medical. Uh, there's been a massive shift in the last bunch of years that uh, is very obvious. And, um, you know, I, I, I think many of us would see in the, the world of the media that they've really, they've really under... You know, I used to read the papers, read the, listen to the media, and there was a sense of respect and trust that you might have that they're pursuing the truth and so on. But... It just feels so much like many have pursued such agendas and causes that we're now not sure how much we're hearing their particular spin on things and trust is eroded. But even with scientists, you know, you used to put a lab coat on someone and you'd go, whatever they said, I'd trust. But now you want to know who's paying them. Where's the research grant coming from? What really is an agenda? We are in a context where we're not sure that you can trust anyone anymore. But here it is this morning, there's one place you can go to find a rock, to find someone you can trust. And it's the God of the Bible. You know, every book of the Bible is written to build that trust. So in a sense, every part of the Bible, every book of the Bible is giving us this message that God is there, I am trustworthy, trust me. Um, now, I get it that lots of people, lots of us do find it hard to trust God. There's this struggle within us. It's not him, actually, that's the issue in this. It's us. There's this struggle within us. Uh, there's something within us that doesn't want to trust God. We don't want him to be trustworthy. I'd offer, actually, I'd insist, actually, there's a very deep spiritual thing going on in every human heart where we, we don't want God to be the ruler. We don't want God over us. And so we're, we're actually finding reasons to see that he's not trustworthy. But the big thing here is, though, that God is coming back to his world and he comes back to his world in various events and actions through history that he's now recorded for us in the word of God, the Bible. And each of these words are saying to us, come back. I'm trustworthy. I've always been trustworthy. Life has always been about living under me until... You were tempted until drawn aside from your own pride. Come back and find life. You need me. Now this book, the book of Esther, every book that's written in the Bible pushes this point. 
And the book of Esther, particularly though, as we've been going through it, the, the people who lived through the events of Esther, you remember we've been doing this for the last bunch of weeks, this is our last week in this book of Esther, uh, events that are recorded that happened long before Jesus, uh, uh, about 480 BC. The early readers, the people who lived through the, the events that uh, are recorded in Esther, took exa it exactly that way. That is, they took it as a series of events that were to cause them to trust God. And the whole book finishes, we're just looking at the last couple of chapters in chapter 9, the book finishes with a festival being established. Chapter 9, verse 18, 19, all the way to the end pretty much, records this festival of thanksgiving and devotion and rekindling of trust in God, the God who has delivered his people through a series of remarkable events. And it's uh, verse 24, it's a... It's a festival uh, called Purim, the, the festival that trades on the casting of lots. And verse 26, these days were to be called this because everything that was written in this letter is, to be, is, is seen to be have happened to them. And actually, ancient Jewish writers tell us that these events shifted the Jewish world. It shifted them from believing in God because he did miracles to believing in God and trusting him for who he was. The all-powerful, the God who works in all things. You know, this is a book we've commented often on. A, it's a book without miracles. This is the book about the everyday God, the God of every moment. Do you know the miracle God is great? He's impressive, right? But the God of every moment is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And the astonishing way that he delivered this ancient people via the very ordinary means of circumstances shook this ancient people up so that they actually, we're told by these ancient Jewish writers, shifted now to trust God's word in a way they hadn't before. And this book is meant to be a word to us about the same truth, that God is trustworthy. Because lots of things have changed, but some things haven't changed. Lots of things have changed. The God of the Jew is actually the God of all the earth. And the people of God, who were once ethnic Jews who came into the Jewish community, the people of God have now expanded to become peoples of all nations, all racial identities. It's now no longer ethnic Jew who becomes the person of God. It's the person who puts their faith in Jesus, the true Jew. All who turn to Jesus and put their faith in him are now the people of God. The people of God as a category has expanded massively across the whole planet so that we here in Australia are now people of God alongside believing Jews. Lots have changed. But the God who worked this reversal in the events of Esther, who delivered his people and urged his people to reflect on that great deliverance that they might trust him, is the same God today. He's the God that we serve. And this deliverance through the events of Esther is evidence of a greater deliverance where he will lift all his people up, as we heard last week, and bring a great reversal for all of us. Trust him. And fundamental to life with this God 
is that those who are mourning, grieving, feeling loss, are humbled and hurting, God will lift up. He will reverse. We will be comforted. You see, this book is our book meant to strengthen our faith. Our faith in a God who is trustworthy. And it's been doing that. I mean, if you've been with us over these last bunch of weeks, I keep hearing people comment on how helpful this time has been. It's been hugely helpful in just building our confidence in a God who is there, who's real, who's working. Except now we come to the end of it. And there's one piece that threatens to undermine that faith in God as trustworthy. Have you noticed what it is if you've been reading it through? It's the niggling fear that the God of Esther is not really a God that we want to trust. Why? Because of the brutality that emerges at the very end of the book. Do you remember it? Let me take us through this uh, great reversal and draw your attention to the brutality that finishes this book that does threaten our sense that is this God trustworthy. Um, do this quickly because of time but you remember um, because of the pride of one man Haman who we met very early on in the book and the laziness of another the king of Persia the greatest king at the time a decree had been issued to destroy kill and annihilate all the Jews back in chapter 4 young old women men children and to take all of their goods here was a decree that had been issued that couldn't be undone the complete annihilation of the Jewish people, men, women and children, and all their plunder gone. But because of the efforts of a Jewish woman, Esther, and an old Jewish man, Mordecai, a new decree is put in place by that same lazy king, if you like. Chapter 8, verse 11. Now, we won't go through all the details, but chapter 8, verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nation or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. That command, by the way, is an exact reverse of the command that Haman caused to be issued way back in the beginning. And because this theme that runs through the whole of these series of events is complete reversal, that command completely parallels the one that happened previously. Now, this, of course, this great reversal didn't just happen. It was the end of a series of astonishing coincidence, the just-so-happened moments. And if you've been going through, this is partly what's been so encouraging about this group. You remember, Esther just so happened to be orphaned and adopted by Mordecai, who just so happened to have connections with the king so that he had was able to bring her into a contest for the affections of the king and she won. Amazingly, he became queen. It just so happened. And Mordecai just so happened to overhear a plot against the king and caused him to be rescued from this plot. But he just so happened not to have gotten honoured at that time. And it was the case that at the very centre of the book we hear that the king just so happened not to be able to sleep one night between two parties that he'd been involved in, quite extraordinary, the sitting up in the circumstances, and he just so happened to read about Mordecai not being honoured. And so he determined then to honour him, and in the process got rid of Haman, the one who'd set the original decree. 
because he just so happened to come in when, Morde when Haman was on a couch looking like he was molesting his wife and so his anger was aroused and he killed this man but in the process of getting rid of the enemy he then just so happened to elevate Mordecai Esther's the queen and they then maneuvered things to ensure that a new decree is issued in the king's name that completely reverses the circumstances of the Jews miraculously without a miracle which shows a God who doesn't just step in at big moments and is absent, but a God who rules every moment. The God of miracles is great, but the God of every day and every moment is omnipotent, is all-powerful. But this reversal comes with blood. So chapter 9. Let's now look a little bit of the detail here. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned. Reversal, you see. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of the king Xerxes to attack those who determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the peoples of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And you find, now with the tables turned, the Jews getting the upper hand, chapter 5, they struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And don't you start to cringe. In the citadel of Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They killed all the sons of Haman. And don't you find yourself starting to cringe a little? Is this a God? How come? What's going on here? It seems so brutal. Verse 15, you hear that it's after Esther actually asked for a second day of killing. Verse 12. And so verse 15, the Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day, the next day, and put to death in Susa 300 men. And then finally, verse 16, we're told that all across the empire, they killed 75,000 men. And now, isn't it the case that modern 21st century Australians are beginning to wonder, what's with this? What kind of God is this God? And a book that's designed to produce my confidence and trust in this God begins to see that leak away. It threatens to undermine the very point of the book. And so we need to dig here. Everything depends on us being able to trust this God. And it matters that we join the dots as they happened and not as we pessimistically want them to be joined. Do you, do you see, we need to look at the, the whole piece and see what actually is going on here. Well, what to make of it? I'm going to make three points and then pull it together for us. The first point is this. It's always the first point, actually, whatever we do. Uh, the God who gives us this book is the God who gave his own life for us on the cross. We're going to keep cycling back to the cross again and again in these next few minutes. The God who gave us this book 
is the God who gave his own life for us. So whatever is happening in Esther, he is the same God who came for us, who gave his own life as a ransom in our place, who humbled himself and entered into our world to walk in our shoes and live our life and rescue us from it at great cost to himself. That's the God of the Bible. So whenever you have doubts and questions and you're wondering about how the dots all join together, go straight to the cross and keep reminding yourself that's who God is. A God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. If there are things that you can't fit together, go there and remind yourself that this is who he is at heart. This is the centre of who he is. If there's bits I don't understand, at least I have this rock to rest on. So whenever you're in doubt, start there. There's the first thing. The second thing is this. Just notice some details about these events. First thing to notice is that the action of the Jews was a defensive action action the decree was to defend themselves um, he gave them verse 11 chapter 8 the right to assemble and protect themselves it was defensive you know it's um, mentioned a number of times also that the defense is against their enemies one of the things you ought to when you're reading the bible uh, is just keep watching for repetition repetition is a way to see uh, kind of a point the author is trying to make to help us understand what's in their head, you see. Uh, and one of the pieces that's re repeated constantly through this section is the fact that the, the ones they defend themselves against are enemies who hate them. Chapter 9, verse 1, against those who hated them. Chapter 5, they struck down all their enemies, those who hated them. Chapter 9, verse 16, they got relief from their enemies. Verse 22, the same, from their enemies. And notice too that these are their hardcore enemies. You know, uh, chapter 9 tells us uh, <clears throat> that fear struck all the people. Uh, verse uh, 2 and 3, uh, fear struck all the people because of the power that Mordecai now had and the position Queen Esther had and the decree that had come out. Um, and so lots of people were swapping sides, wanting now to be with the Jews, you see, wanting to get on the side of the Jews. The ones that were killed were the ones determined never to change their hostility towards the Jews. These were implacable enemies who wouldn't let anything stop their hatred of the Jews. Here's a couple of pieces just to appreciate. Here we see justice being done, not maliciousness. Third thought. And the big one. What the Jews did, you'll notice, was different to the decree of Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai ensured that a decree was established uh, by the king's edict that they were to protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and plunder the property of their enemies there's a number of features in that decree defend themselves of course but destroy and kill and annihilate the armed men of any nation and their women and children and plunder the property but what is striking is that they didn't do what the decree told them to do we're only told they killed men and we're repeatedly told 
that they didn't take any plunder. Again, notice the repetition of this. Uh, Chapter 9, let's have a look there, verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the city of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, notice that men, and the sons of Haman. But look at the end of verse 10. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 14 and 15, they were given an extra day. But look at the end of verse 15. They did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, the end of verse 16, they killed 75,000 of them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Three times. It's striking because the decree had specifically said to take the plunder. But here we're told three times by the author that the Jews didn't take the plunder. Now, what is that? This is big. And it indicates that the Jews saw themselves doing something very particular. They saw themselves doing what the very early Jewish people did back in the days of um, Joshua coming into the promised land. They were, and here it is, acting against sin, not acting for themselves. You see, this isn't the first time that Israel as a nation had killed people in war. Very early on, as they came to land under Joshua, they were told by God to take the lives of various people in the cities that they conquered. But there was something very particular about those events. It was never a racial thing. It was never an ethnic thing. It was never a simple act of war either. And this is it. This is the big thing. This is the big thing. It was rather God's battle against sin and evil. You see, why does God command the destruction of a certain people? Because of their sin. Come with me to Genesis chapter 15. It's worth having a look at this. Keep something there in Esther. uh, Right at the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 15, uh, before any of these events have even been thought of in the minds of humans, I want you to notice what God says in Genesis chapter 15, all the way back. Listen to verse 16. Well, he's now talking with Abram and saying to him that you will, uh, he's giving him the future. Verse 12, he's, verse 13, he says, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God will punish the slave owners, do you see, the abusive ones. And afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. Verse 15. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Just notice that sentence. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. He's in the land of Palestine, Israel there, you see. They'll come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Who are the Amorites? They're the people of the land. And what you have is God saying, I'm going to bring you back into the land and I'm going to bring you back to conquer the people that are here, but only when their sin 
has reached its full measure so that the conquest is an act of justice against sin and not just an act of plunder. God will empower them to defeat the people because this is his just war against sin. And notice he is patient in this. God is slow to do this. It takes four generations for this to happen. But he will come and he will judge the sin of the Amorites through the Israelites. Now, I'm conscious that even saying this, it can leave many of us feeling uneasy. Is it ever right? I'd offer some of our unease is because of the way we think about sin. If you think of sin as a small thing, a trivial thing, like eating chocolates when you ought not eat them, then to be judged with death via the sword, that seems an overreaction, yeah? But if that's the way we think, then we will also balk against the notion of a final judgment where we, assured, we are assured by Jesus and the New Testament that God one day will bring all of humanity before the judgment seat of Christ and all will stand under condemnation unless they're in Jesus. You know, I get it that evil people perhaps need to be judged, frowned on for a while, but hell? You see, this whole issue of sin and judgment is one that's actually deeply concerning for us. But fundamental to the Bible is a view of humanity. Fundamental to the Bible is a view of humanity that is massively out of favour in today's age. Sin. What do you think is the most horrible sin that you can think of? Oh, it's, it's kind of a dreadful thing on a Sunday morning too. But, you know, you think about sin. Okay, what, what, what is the most horrible sin you can imagine? that someone might commit. We do have a sense of gradation, you know, grades of sin, which is not always a bad thing. You know, we, we might think like robbing a bank. Robbing a bank is bad. It deserves punishment. But forgive me for this. Uh, abusing a child and selling them into slavery, uh, molesting, right? So, that is monstrous. See, right there we have a sense an instinct that some things are wrong, but some things are monstrously wrong. Some things deserve punishment, but some things def definitely deserve to be punished. Do you know what's noteworthy is that instinct, that kind of feel, that gut about what's monstrous and what's just wrong has shifted over time. It's interesting, uh, recently I, I noted uh, in a research paper that, um, well, in a book writing about these things, that uh, the the horror of young adults towards various things has shifted in America. So that now uh, people are, young adults are now uh, outraged that people might litter. But not so concerned that someone might lie. So lying is now no longer creating an instinctive horror in a young adult. Littering is. Now that's a shift that's occurred. Now I'm not for littering, <laughs> bad thing. But is it greater than lying and deceit? Something shifted, our moral compass, our instincts have shifted. And that's worth noting. 
Because the Bible consistently and unwaveringly says the greatest sin is to offend against the infinite creator of the universe. To betray him is the greatest sin. Now notice I use the language of betray and not simply break some rules. There is a tendency to imagine Christians are saying uh, God gets angry because we just slip up and break some rules. No, no, no. The Bible is far more profound in its analysis of humankind than that. There's something far deeper going on in human sin. It's not just, it's not just breaking some rules. It's offending relationally. It's betraying the one who has given us all things, who is himself a being of infinite worth and majesty. And so to betray him is infinitely greater than any other kind of betrayal. See, what I'm trying to persuade you of is the seriousness of sin. It has been said by thinkers in the past that people who react against the idea of God's judgment fail to understand uh, the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. And that is rife in our community. We've shifted our moral compass and our moral compass shifting tends to always preference us. Throughout human history, God has been at war. But he's been at war against sin and evil wherever it's found. But he's a God of love, so he's slow in his war against it. The Amalekites, he waited generations until their sin was all pervasive. And this spirit of sin, the depth of it, finds its way into the part of history we've been looking at. Esther, Haman was an Agagite, either a descendant of the great king of the Amalekites, who are part of this people group, or was of the spirit of that people. And the author is saying, this is someone of that ilk. And he showed himself to be that, of course, too. God's war. God is at war, but he's at war against human sin and evil. And because it's against sin and evil, he never privileges one nation over another. He turns his justice against it wherever he finds it. And so he turns his just anger against Israel. When they persisted in their rebellion against him, when they refused to see their need of his grace, God has no favourites like that. Without seeing all of this, the death of so many as being God's judgment against sin, we will never make sense of the Bible. We will never make sense of the Old Testament. We will never make sense of the New Testament. We will never make sense of the cross. You know, I was asked the other day by a friend, uh, he was testing me. And uh, I think I only just passed the test, actually. But uh, he said to me, what's the greatest problem facing teenagers today? Let me test you. He did it to me. Let me do it to you. What do you think is the greatest? What is the greatest problem facing teenagers today? Push pause, have a chat, go and get a drink. But what do you think is the greatest problem facing teenagers today? Now, I offered some thoughts. I thought they were pretty good thoughts. I still think they're not bad thoughts. But he shared a response that he got off an older Christian brother. 
which was brilliantly right. He asked an older Christian brother what he thought the greatest problem facing teenagers today was. And this brother said, like a shot, that's easy, sin and God's righteous judgment. That's the greatest problem. It's the greatest horror in our world, sin and God's righteous judgment. It's the greatest threat to our lives, sin and God's holy response to it. God is doing battle against sin, sin that destroys his image bearers, sin that destroys his world, sin that perverts and corrupts. And so we circle back to the cross. The cross is God doing battle with sin and defeating it and making it a way for sinners to still be delivered through forgiveness. You know, in Esther, they didn't take the plunder. It's mentioned three times. Why didn't they take the plunder when Esther's command was to do just that? Because they saw it was like those very early battles as they came in among the Amorites with Joshua leading them. And if you go back to that part of history, you'll see that God said, don't take the plunder. Destroy it. Because this battle is not for your benefit, for you to gain from this this is about my judgment on sin. This isn't about you profiting. It's about God's reaction patiently to the sin of the Amorites. You see, the book of Esther tells us of a great deliverance, a great reversal. It's celebrated each year, which established for the Jews the trustworthiness of God, his omnipotence, his power. But this deliverance only anticipates something greater. The greater reversal, the greater deliverance, the greater battle against sin. The cross and resurrection of Jesus. God's been at war against sin from the beginning, from its entry into the world when we destroyed a perfect world in our pride and throughout he's been patient with us, slow, warning us, weeping over us, calling people back to himself. When as God, he had the right to simply destroy us and he one day will. He promises that there is a day when Romans chapter 2, we will store up wrath against ourselves if we remain in rebellion against him. He will judge. But God, the God of love, works a great deliverance before that final day of judgment. Where he brings about deliverance through an even more astonishing set of it-just-so-happened events. When a young Jewish woman, a nobody, is given to carry the saviour of the world, Luke chapter 2, who grows up to then give himself over to death, even death on a cross, through a series of just so happened moments with Judas and others and an event of horror and darkness and grief him hanging on the cross turns out to be the complete reverse where we see him to be abandoned by God we find actually God is most pleased with him because at that moment he has humbled himself to be obedient to God to even death on a cross 
so that by that death God might actually win the victory against sin and Satan and death and three days later show the world the greatest reversal that's ever been seen when Jesus the dead man is raised to life again the king of the universe the great Messiah the Lord and in his resurrection he shows that death has been reversed sin has been paid for sinners can now be forgiven instead of being condemned the great reversal you know the Jews met every year to celebrate the great deliverance they had at that time in Esther we should meet every day and celebrate the great deliverance we've received through that same God they went from condemnation the weight of death hanging over them to freedom confidence security and peace and they celebrated they gave gifts to one another they ate and they drank we go from condemnation under the judgment of a righteous God for our sin for our sin to freedom security forgiveness adoption from slaves to adopted sons and daughters of God all by the gracious hand of God himself delivered the greatest reversal you know part of our challenge is we don't always feel that it's such a great reversal because we don't feel the horror of our condemnation Jesus is exactly right when he says he is forgiven much loves much if you love little and celebrate little it's because you underestimate human sin and the holiness of God the greater you grasp those things the greater your sense of celebration and wonder you know we're finishing Esther I hope you've loved it I, I it's been wonderful uh, I, I was sure we we're always told you should only preach one sermon on Esther because you've got nothing to say more than much but uh, we've, it's been rich it's been wonderful it's timely how appropriate that we've been doing this book at this time it just so happened Ruth and Esther and the lessons have been wonderful the horrors of pride Haman the importance of embracing who you are as God's person your identity in Christ Esther the great reversal that occurs through the grace of God who delivers his people but more particularly the reminder that God is at work in everything nothing takes him by surprise nothing's out of his hands he is working to deliver his people in all the moments of life not just a few miraculous events but the it just so happened moments you know you may not see many miracles or you might God is the God who can do miracles we've seen some wonderful ones over the years but not often not many but what you can see are the millions of just so happened moments in your life to remind you of God's grace in you God is at work and this book records a particularly vivid and great dramatic time when he showed his hand his hidden hand to assure us that he is someone you can trust he will deliver he will lift you up in due course he will completely turn your life around and even the peace that you might feel threatens the confidence you can have in God the fact that there were so many killed and so on is with more careful thought one more piece of evidence about how trustworthy God is 
and how important it is to trust him because he's the God who is holy and he's doing battle against sin wherever it's found. He will condemn sin in sinful humanity. Our only hope is pardon and forgiveness established by the great reversal, Jesus' death and resurrection. Do you know that forgiveness? We all one day will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Do you know that you are forgiven for that day? This only happens because of the goodness of God who works the great miracle of the cross and resurrection through so many ordinary events but shows his great power. You know, the greatest message of every book of the Bible and this one particularly is trust God. You can trust this God. He has given evidence of his trustworthiness all through history. He's recorded us for us in the Bible and these books in Esther, evidence of his trustworthiness. If you haven't come to him yet and put your trust in him, I'd urge you to do it today. If you have, enjoy that confidence that you can have in a rock who is dependable, who will lift you up in due course. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a word that is so rich and deep that gives us such confidence that you are a God worthy of our trust. We thank you for this time in the book of Esther and um, pray please that you would drive the lessons of this book deep in our hearts that we might see the just-so-happened moments. We might be thankful for your hand at work in our lives in the ordinary things that we might see you are the God who is at war against sin. And so even more rush to our Saviour and Deliverer, Jesus, and be full of joy and gladness and celebrate that in him the great reversal has happened for us. We've been delivered from condemnation, from death, to joy, adoption, justification, gladness, forgiveness. Please help us always trust you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God is